0: You're listening to Schooled with Carla Hulse. Join Carla as she explores K-12 education disruption and has deep-dive conversations with ed leaders, ed tech, ed foundations, ed professional service organizations, and ed educators who school her on ed innovations and their impact on educational policy across the country. Here's Carla. We are back after a mini-vacation we are back today with a powerhouse guest, Jess Gartner, the CEO and founder of AlloView. And for those of you who don't know, AlloView is an educational technology company that empowers K 12 educators to strategically and equitably allocate financial resources. AlloView supports school districts across the nation to budget, manage, and evaluate spending. Um, Alivew, again, for those who don't know, has been credited with the birth of the Ed Fintech industry, and annually, Alivew hosts the Future of Education Finance Summit. So let me give you a little bit of a rundown about Jess herself. She has been featured as one of Forbes Magazine's 30 Under 30. The Baltimore Sun has recognized her as one of the women to watch, and um, the business journal of baltimore recognized her as one of 40 under 40. she was also recognized as a maryland smart ceo innovator of the year and received the johns hopkins outstanding alumni award and the maryland tedco entrepreneur of the year award and also before founding out just view jess is an educator she studied education policy at the university of pennsylvania um, she received her M.A. in teaching from Johns Hopkins University. She also serves on the boards of Access Art M.D., the Johns Hopkins School of Education National Advisory Council, and Teach for America. Okay, so Jess, welcome to School. I am so glad you um, said yes to doing the podcast today, so thank you. Of course, thank you for having me. So I'm glad you're here. And um, again, this is a topic that is, I don't want to say near and dear to my heart, but this is the topic that is kind of, I think, one of the underpinnings, I think, in transforming K-12 education. But it seems, Jess, that no one is really saying, hey, let's talk really about how education is funded and then what happens with those funds so so we'll get to all that so i want to start with why are you even in the ed finance space (laughs) it's not the most sexy thing to do it's not the most i hate to say this most financially kind of bankable right you could be making tons more money i'm sure doing whatever the gurus are doing around the country so why are you in this space ed finance
1: oh that's a great question (laughs) um I felt really called to this work in no small part because of my experience as a teacher in Baltimore City Public Schools. I studied education policy undergrad. I worked as a middle school language arts and social studies teacher in Baltimore City Public Schools. And one of the things that struck me during that experience was how much of my classroom teaching and learning um, materials and supplies had to be provided and procured by me. I think I walked in the week before school started and. I was basically handed a shoebox with a couple staples and a red pen in it and that is something that pretty much anybody who has been a teacher is familiar with right i mean right now if you go on twitter if you search the hashtag clear the list yeah it's teachers all over the country trying to fund the materials and supplies for their classrooms personally right they're raising money from family and friends and strangers on the internet buying really basic supplies you know uh hand sanitizer which in the in a time of uh, competing pandemics is right. almost comical um yeah. that we have teachers doing these like go fund me campaigns yeah. and donors choose to buy basic necessities like soap and so you know it's not like we're doing fundraisers to take kids to you know the nasa headquarters Correct. right something like Correct. exceptional which i mean you know that we should be doing things like that too but I was doing fundraisers for like the projector light bulb and the basic books that I was using for curricular materials day to day and it just struck me as something that was so inhibiting for successful teaching and successful learning and instruction and you know to your point earlier I kept thinking why don't I really I don't really hear people talking about this yeah I mean, teachers talk about it. They, you know, we commiserate but it's, but it's, about right, but it's, like, but it's, but it's, but it's, it's a sort a of just around,
0: accepted. Right, but it's also like this kind of um, conversation around just, I'm not getting the stuff I need or our school isn't. Right. And I'm talking really about two things. I'm talking about, yes, that, like funding schools, like teachers need supplies, right? But I'm also talking about just the entire construct of K-12 education Yes, is improperly funded. Um, from the feds to the states to counties on down, so I'm talking big picture, macro as well as micro. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, we hear the like, you know, what's you know the hashtags on the internet, and that's very micro. But no one is saying, "Hello, why is our formula really based on you know taxpayers?" And yeah. so, if I'm living in Beverly Hills or Bel Air or Malibu. We're lucky because we have a high tax base, right? We've got the billionaires who live with us or in the Bay Area. Um, And no one's questioning that. Like, like, during this pandemic, I thought this was another thing that was gonna happen. I thought, 2020, yes, we're gonna revolt. We're gonna be in the streets. Let's undo this beast called K-12 and let's start with funding, right? Let's start with dismantling maybe the Department of Ed. Like, let's get bold. And it's like, here's some ARPA funds. Let's have more tutoring.
1: So a couple things on that. For one, I think people are starting to talk about it. I am increasingly seeing states tackle this from an advocacy standpoint, from a legislative standpoint. Um, for the past decade, I've lived in Maryland and we just passed really historic new legislative uh, legislation called Blueprint for Maryland, which um, I believe will put an extra $10 billion into schools over the next decade. Uh, really landmark funding and new funding formula and some some other new components to go along with it. Tennessee just passed a new funding formula so that we are starting to see it in in pockets. But to your point about the foundation of how we fund schools. And this idea that it is largely funded by property tax revenue. This is really fraught for a couple of reasons. For one, property tax revenue is actually a good source of revenue to fund schools because it's pretty stable. Sure. Right? You don't see the same volatility with property tax revenue uh, during different economic climates as you do with many other uh, economic indicators. So that's something in the pro column. Now, in the con column (laughs) is, of course, that due to uh, decades and centuries of segregation, redlining, correct. um, uh, Insert period of our history where entire groups of people did not have equal opportunities and access to property ownership. Correct. It is extremely inequitable, from one place to another. And there are some states where those inequities have really been heightened by a lot of very intense gerrymandering around school district lines. So we see these school districts that are basically these tiny islands. And then you have another school district that entirely surrounds it 360 degrees. (laughs) And they're they're just these islands of wealth Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. that
1: have been gerrymandered to protect yes and encapsulate that wealth in certain communities right it's the new redlining yes the problem is if you surveyed the average property owner and said do you think that students should have equal access to education and opportunity at school they would probably say yes if you then followed up that question and said would you be willing to take some of the dollars from your child's school and send them to the school in the district next door? I think you would be met with a long pause.
0: Right. So that's the macro. So yes. if we didn't leave, and we, I'm saying ED, the U.S. Department of ED, if, if ED didn't leave it up to states, counties, districts, If the formula was really, it's a it it's going, we're gonna look at the United States as a whole plus the DOD schools plus the territory schools and say you all must get X amount of dollars. So if that is raised across the board, and then supplemental funding is given based on again, things like Title I, whatever, but if that is coming from the federal government rather than or in addition to, I guess, t- property taxes. Then I don't then we're not pitting neighbors against each other. Like I just see a different role for the feds, it, rather than rolling out every 5 years or when a new administration comes in here, here is some new money. It's called no child left behind. It's called race to the top. Why can't they be the purveyors of equity?
1: Well, so here's the interesting thing. Every presidential election cycle, you hear every candidate get up and talk about funding schools and access to education opportunities. And that rings very hollow for me because the reality is that federal funding for education is in the single digit percentage points, right? Historically, federal funding, all federal funding for K-12, is something like six to 9% of education funding. It's very, very small. And in some districts, it's almost nothing because most of that funding is targeted grants for special ed, title one, et cetera. So we have some school districts who have maybe one or 2% federal funding. So it's really a state's issue. And I think for lots of reasons in terms of the way that the country's constitution is written and the way that the country is designed and the current political climate, it has to be an issue that is solved at the state level. The federal government is never going to be able to come in and dictate to states how they fund education. This is a problem that is going to have to be solved at the state level. And this is where those state legislation efforts are really, really meaningful for moving the needle on equity, because the states can decide, we're not going to let the zip code, or this boundary line, define the dollars that you get when you go to school or the opportunities that you have when you show up to school.
0: And so so, can't the feds then, though, play the role of, say, and I've said this before in in previous podcasts, kind of as a Supreme Court to say, (laughs) you know, foul, Idaho, you're failing your, you know, your districts, your funding formula is, you know, below our bar, blah, 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 you know, foul Nebraska, right? Like there should be some governing body saying, hey, you're dropping the ball, Florida, or good job, Massachusetts, right?
1: maybe in a perfect world. But if you're asking if I think that that is remotely feasible today, absolutely not. I mean, look at the Supreme Court decisions that are being handed down right now. Everything is being pushed back to the states. So, you know, I think we do have to consider what what might be a perfect solution in a land of ideal equity. But then we also have to think about what is actually feasible in the political and social climate that we have. And right now, I do not see edicts being passed down from the federal government about education funding being a remote possibility anytime in the next several years.
0: So then why getting back to then why Allivew? Why start a company like Allivew? is it was it for that very reason like i don't see any edicts coming down i can maybe fill in the void somehow what were you thinking when you started the company
1: interestingly my education background was in education policy it's what i studied undergrad it's what i thought i was going to do with my career and i was in college and i was a young teacher it around the heyday of No Child Left Behind. So federal education policy was in the news in a big way, in a, in a transformative way. For, for all we could criticize No Child Left Behind, it forever changed the way that we talk about education policy and the role of the federal government in education.
0: Correct. And I think it, it changed a little bit and, and not in a positive way how we view accountability. Absolutely.
1: Right? Absolutely. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: For better or worse, education yep. has been forever changed. And I was completely fascinated by that from a policy standpoint. And so I immediately started thinking about what were ways that I could have a more direct impact and where were there things that were getting either mistranslated or lost along the way in the various uh you know in sort of the obstacle course that you have to go through in in legislation and policy and the thing that i just kept coming back to is this topic of resources when you walk into a school everything from the pencils that the kids are holding to the teacher that's standing in front of them there's a budget line items somewhere or not behind those things. And what I saw was that teachers were filling in a lot of the gaps where there were not budget line items behind things that teachers were saying, actually, these are really important things for my kids to have when they show up to school. I've decided as a teacher that it's really important that my kid has a pencil when they show up to school and if the school isn't going to provide it, I'll, I'll buy it myself. And so this seemed like an area to me that was so deeply impactful. I didn't hear people talking about it that much from a macro systemic standpoint. And simultaneously I was becoming very interested personally in technology and the power of technology to enable change. And I found myself asking questions about this that I could not answer and that nobody that I talked to could answer and I felt like as teachers we were swimming in data we were constantly creating data sets we were analyzing data about student achievement about teacher effectiveness about district effectiveness and school effectiveness and every data point that we were looking at was some sort of output or outcome yep and if you think about the most basic algebra equation, yes, right. You cannot yes. just look at one side of the equation. If you want to solve for X, Amen, my sister. you have to look at both sides. And I said, okay, what's the other side of the equation here? And it's very clearly the resources. And I use that word very broadly resources. I think about time yep. scheduling. yep. Um, people, the teachers, the number of them, the staff, the wraparound services, the level of expertise and experience and and the effectiveness of those staff members that are in front of students. Yes, of course, the little micro resources, the books and the paper and the technology and how all of those things fit together. And I said, where is the conversation about that? Where is the conversation about, hey, Ms. Gartner, what do you think you would need in your classroom if we wanted this to be the outcome for your students yep. at the end of the year? That conversation was missing. All that I saw from that was that somebody walked into my room with a clipboard and said, "Miss <laughs> Gartner, do you have a warm and inviting library in your classroom? And I said, right. well, do you have um bookshelves books a rug some posters and some beanbag chairs that i could have and they said no and i said well then you're gonna need to wait until the next pay cycle for me to attempt to create a <laughs> warm and inviting library because i'm tapped out uh
0: this whole conversation around inputs and its importance is um my beating drum but um, I want folks to really understand the power of Alview. and just, you know, maybe I'm just a nerd in this way, but your dollars to dashboards that you guys have up now, I mean, that is like a Bible. I love that thing. Um, so we'll get into that. So let's talk about, though, those inputs and yeah. those line items that those inputs align to. And the importance of having that. Like why should schools I mean because schools and districts and states have dashboards. And yes. now with Esser, they have now kind of dollar dashboards, supposedly, right? Um, why is that even important? Who cares? Right? I mean it's all on paper somewhere. We can go find it, yada, 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 yada. So what's the beauty of having it visualized? What is that going to do or what can it do?
1: My love hate relationship with school finance is rooted in its complexity because on the one hand education finance is probably the most complex data that exists in k-12 it is so detailed it is so granular i consider the account strings for school district budgets like the dna code of a school district or school right it's like it's like the genome project it is it is those dollars are recorded to the penny with a level of granularity that you could hardly imagine. And we talk about this in our in our dollars to dashboard resource, in the context of Esser dollars, where I think this is, it's very, it's exacerbated, because it's so much in the public eye, and it is in the headlines. But this is really just a microcosm of the school finance conversation at large it's the yes. exact same issue for for just this pot of money and so there's this inherent tension in the fact that districts are actually swimming in finance data with more detail than anybody that's just trying to understand how their kids school or their local school works would need and more data than you could possibly use to analyze in any sort of reasonable way. But the flip side of that is that there's not a great way to aggregate that in a way that is accessible, that is user friendly, that is understandable, that is standardized, that is, comparable to other districts or other states. And so the reality is that everybody just assumes that we have nothing. Yeah, because there's no in between things are either aggregated to a level that makes absolutely no sense, right? Like, oh, we spent this giant bucket of money on instruction. Everyone's like, what, what does that mean? Correct. And then If you dig down, you know, the next layer is like, well, I can tell you how much we spent on the light bulbs right? and that they're, you know, what what wattage they are and what brand they are. And also that's that's not useful either. And so the challenge is that we need this middle layer of data that really does not exist in any sort of uniform way that splits the difference between aggregating something to the point of being just completely opaque and useless Correct. but is also not at such a level of detail that it, it is also equally useless and overwhelming to somebody who's trying to ask critical questions about education resources
0: yeah I mean that, that's interesting you brought up kind of the Esser funds because there's a education writer every day writing another article about where is the money going what is it really what is it that people don't understand about? not only these ESSER funds, but just ed finance. How does it even work for people to understand that, yes, a big sum comes out, but that's not how allocations work in districts. It takes the time to even just procure whatever you're trying to now get, whether it's masks or hand sanitizer or a new social worker. It's like, what? why are you so stupid on this, people? It's (laughs) like, what, what what do we need to do? That's why, again, your dollars to dashboard, it was like, oh my God, everyone just needs to read this you will understand. So this this
1: narrative around nobody spending the dollars was the prevailing catalyst for why we created that resource because I felt like I was losing my mind.
0: Yes,
1: going onto Twitter and seeing these news news headlines of saying, Oh, schools aren't spending the money, when I know what's happening behind the scenes. And again, this is a small example of a broader challenge with ed finance, which is that the lag between when dollars are allocated, when they are spent and when they are reported is, it's really unacceptable. Right. I mean, the, the quote unquote best ed finance data that we have comes from the census and it's published three years behind. <laughs> I mean, just think about how helpful data three years behind right now, like it, we might as well be on another planet. Yeah. So that is the standard, the standard <laughs> reporting timeline in, in like the best of times yeah. is that data is three years behind. And these SR dollars were awarded And literally within weeks, people were like, Where is the money? How do we know when it's been spent? And now it's creating these headlines. So there's a few things about ESSER in particular that I have been just screaming to anybody who will listen and trying to be louder for the people in the back on. (laughs) One is this timeline issue, right? So the time, even between when that legislation was written x billions of dollars are being awarded to when it got to the states to when it got to the districts to when districts were approved to spend it, right was anywhere from months to the better part of a year. I mean, the s $3 in particular, they were awarded March of 2021. And as of January 22, districts still hadn't received those dollars or hadn't right. received approval to spend them. So you've got people yelling in November, where are these dollars going? And the districts are like, we haven't even gotten them yet. So that was problem number one. Problem number two, for the most part, districts are not wandering around thinking, gosh, if a billion dollars (laughs) just fell out of the sky, what would I do with it? And that would that would be in a good time. But now we have this added complexity of we are mid-crisis, Correct. right? So so the analogy that I've been giving to people on this is, let's say you were saving up to do a, a, a renovation on your house, right? Let's say you wanted to redo your bathroom or put an addition on, whatever. you want to redo your kitchen, whatever, right? You're saving your pennies and you're ready to do this big remodel and you've been thinking about it for years. You've got all your color palettes and your tile picked out. And your basement floods <laughs> right okay you are now not going to be buying the pretty tile for your kitchen you have to go make sure you don't have black mold in your right. basement and all the pennies that you've been saving for that beautiful renovation are now going to flood mitigation to make sure you don't have mold and diseases in Correct. your basement so that that was Problem number 1 on the expectations gap is that the districts are like, okay, we ca- we are worried about getting kids fed here, and when the kids are fed, we will begin to assess what we're going to do about the math and right. literacy deficits right. that we're dealing with here, right. So that's another problem. And then of course, every state put in their own special requirements for these spending plans. And the legislation required community engagement. And Carla, I know that you have been in settings where you have had to organize feedback oh from a community boy. setting. So I'm sure you know how quick and easy and so painless and so simple easy. that is. And everyone
0: agrees. I mean, everyone agrees. Amazing. There's
1: there's no there's no dispute. No divergent thinking. No divergent no, not thinking. At all. So even just the time period of organizing this community feedback, and then synthesizing it and figuring out how it fit in with the state plans that took time. Okay, so now we've got our plan, we're finally ready to go. And now we have to deal with labor shortages supply chain issues, Right. it was absolutely driving me crazy to see people be so smug about like, well, you've been saying you want more funding for years and now you have funding and you can't even spend it. Right. And meanwhile, nobody is prepared for that windfall of cash that is one-time funds, by the way. Correct. So it's not like, hey, it would be great to put five extra counselors in every school. Yeah. Oh, OK, well, how will that plan change if you can only have five extra counselors in one school for two years Yeah. and then I you mean, have that's... to fire them all?
0: Right. I mean, that's the lunacy, though. I, I mean, I hate to beat them up of Ed. Right. It's like, you know, you should be spending your money on community schools. Um, OK, so. When this one-time set of money goes away, and I've put in a health center in my school, it's like, right? What? Are you, what kind of cockamamie crazy are you coming from? Yes, yeah, so or even two. It's go ahead. These Ma.
1: these one-time funds are really a double-edged sword because, on the one hand, schools absolutely need the supplemental resources to deal with all of the pre-existing, but also these um, these pandemic-specific challenges. But on the other hand, threading the needle of how to deploy one time funds in a way that does not end up creating more long term challenges than it solves yes. in the short term, yes, is not an easy task. And this is what happens when we don't consistently fund schools at adequate Correct. levels over a period of decades.
0: Throwing
1: a pile of cash at schools for two or three years, yes, it's helpful, but it's not going to transform anything because anything worth doing in education requires consistency, it requires longevity, it requires investment over a long period of
0: time. Yeah. No, no, I agree. And that's why I keep saying there needs to be a different lens from the feds because they would understand exactly what you are saying. This yeah. throwing money is not, I mean, yes, our, our schools are cleaner. You know, people now have HEPA filters. They have better windows. Right. But the quality of teaching and learning is not going to change as a result of these ESSER funds, which leads me to this question, Jess. We talked about the idea of having, which you do, you, this wonderful, um, platform that allows a district to look at the ways in which it is, it's spending all of its dollars. But where is that return on investment piece of that? Mm-hmm. Let's just talk about Esther. So all this money comes into district A and I now know I'm using it in 15 different funding streams, but I don't understand. I don't have a way of measuring if that, mo- that money that went to those 15 streams what the impact on teaching and learning is. So where is that piece? And mm-hmm. wh- why aren't people talking about ROI?
1: This is such a good question, Carla, <laughs> and it's it's one of the most popular questions.
0: Um, and I have- It makes my eye twitch, because I'm like, can we get there, please?
1: Yes and no. I'm gonna give you perhaps an unsatisfying answer. <laughs> so for one, I think we're very far away from doing that in a, standard, ubiquitous way. I think we're very far away from that. Because right now, the status quo for budgeting is largely doing these line item account string budgets. A big thing that all of you is doing is working with school districts to move towards priority based budgeting or strategy based budgeting, where you're not just thinking about these line items as discrete budgets, you are thinking about what combination of resources, personnel and non-personnel contribute to a specific strategy or initiative for your school and district. So we allow districts to set district-wide priorities, which might be something like literacy or community engagement, right? They're pretty broad. They're tied to district-wide strategic plan goals. So then we allow individual departments or principals to say, here's a set of strategies at my school that are in service of that larger goal for the district, right? So for us, if we wanna move the needle on literacy, um, we know that our special ed students are, are a subgroup of students that's really struggling in literacy in our school. In another school, it might be English language learners however the principal wants to do it what are the specific strategies and initiatives at your school that are in service of that goal and what resources do you need to do it is it teachers is it paras is it software is it hardware is it a trip is an attendance monitor is it pizza parties for the family is it extended school hours whatever it is and what does that cost and my favorite part of this is that sometimes will do some carryover budgets and a principal will say i have no idea what this line item fits into and we will say that's probably something you want to evaluate for maybe (laughs) taking out of your budget right i actually think a big part of budgeting is figuring out what you want to stop doing thank you. you can't just add new things forever right districts can't handle and schools cannot handle endless change management So pick the three to five strategies that you're really, really going to focus on and ditch the stuff that is not in service of them. Now, you know, if you've got a fifty thousand dollar software license in there and you cannot explain what strategy that's contributing to and none of your teachers have any explanation for it, maybe let it go.
0: Right. But I think taking it a step further, because I'm not in the business of having my leaders that I coach make arbitrary decisions around what we should be doing and not doing. That's why I'm like, when can we get to the ROI where people can make clear decisions on, we got, you know, these are our strategies, which I, I would, I mean, if I could get my districts to do strategy-based budgeting, my God, sweet baby Jesus, the heavens would open up. Right. But then it's like, so what? There's this black box where people are doing things. We don't know what they're doing. And then it's this lucky and losing cycle. Yay. Test scores went up or boo, they went down. We don't know why. So let's stop doing it or let's keep doing it or let's add to it. It's so arbitrary. Okay. So
1: here's, here's the other part of this. So step one is we would make a lot of progress if we move towards this strategy based budgeting and principals and teachers could explain to you how all the resources in their school contribute to these strategies and to what end. Yeah. And this is where that outcome piece or the performance indicator comes in. Right Right. now, here's the part that I think will be unsatisfying to you. (laughs) Oh No parents and kids and teachers are not coin operated. And this term ROI largely comes from the corporate business world. It does where if you spend a hundred thousand dollars on Facebook ads and you get a thousand clicks on your website and a hundred people buy your widget, yep. you can calculate very clearly yes how that investment translated to the sales that came out of it right there's a very clear breadcrumb trail of how this consumer got from eyeballs on your website to purchasing your widget kids are not coin operated like that they're not facebook ads they're not they're not little prizes in a coin operated machine and they're never they're never going to get to the point where you say if we spend a hundred dollars on this book your test scores are going to go up five points
0: Well, what that's, about that's we sent reasonable. our teachers to this particular professional development and we can measure the effectiveness of that professional development on teacher practice to some degree on student outcomes right so i'm talking about yes. those kinds of measures and no one's measuring but, that right? Well,
1: I think they are. But it's still hard, Carla, because think about it. What if all those teachers are also in um, a little a little Twitter group and they are exchanging resources on Twitter? And it's not actually it's not actually the PD that they went to. It's that they all decided to stay friends and have this uh, Twitter chat on Tuesday nights. And that's actually what's improving their instruction. Sure. And we right? could find so you that get into out. into these no, attribution no, 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 no. errors.
0: Right, right. But no, but you could find that out, right? As a principal, I'm going into my classrooms and I'm observing my teachers on this particular strategy that they've learned at the PD. And I'm seeing they're not doing it. They're doing something else. And I go, so how did you learn this new strategy? It's not what I sent you to training on. Oh, I'm on teacher to teacher, blah, 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 blah. Right. And then I can clearly yes. say money not worth spending. Correct.
1: And I think that that is happening to some extent qualitatively. Right. And, And so there's factors that are happening inside and outside of school where you cannot zero in on was it the curriculum? Or was it the after school program? Or was it something that parents were doing with kids after school? For any one initiative that you come up with, I could give you a thousand factors that will muddy a perfect, quote unquote, ROI analysis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. because there are so many of these factors that are hard to measure. Now, all that being said, I do think we could do a much better job starting to group these resources across strategies and to your point have a conversation yes right say call call those teachers together at the end of the year and say okay we sent you all to this pd series to accomplish xyz what do you think right and if all the teachers were like it was crap we hated it we didn't do it we we don't like it oh well that's weird because you all got better at teaching this year Oh, yeah, because we do brunch every Sunday now and write <laughs> lesson plans together, right? I mean,
0: yes, yes. It's the, I, I just want people to find out what it is yes. that everyone's doing as opposed to being stuck in the lucky and losing cycle going, well, yay, let's continue to do critical friends group because yeah. our test scores went up. We don't, we have no clue really why our test scores went up.
1: Um, But I do think that we can start to get people in the mindset about, Thinking how resources contribute to strategies and initiatives and how they connect to outcomes, and having critical conversations about what is and is not worth investing time, money, and people into.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to end, actually. Is there anything else you want to share about what states, districts, counties, schools, Should be thinking about now that they've gotten these ESSER funds. They're in the middle of it, while also trying to be kind of you know transformative on their own. Because as as we've talked about, the feds aren't going to come in and all of a sudden go, "Well, we're going to you know really transform education." Even though those are the words that come out of their mouths, that's not what's going to happen. So, what can states, counties, districts, schools be doing differently now? What advice are you trying to give people?
1: One of the critiques of ed funding that really gets to me is that we've spent more money on schools over the past few decades, and we haven't seen movement on test scores, et cetera. And I think that is the wrong analysis to be doing and the wrong question to be asking because the reality and the story that that misses is that we have only started caring about the education of all students in this country for a few minutes.
0: Yeah, oh yeah.
1: And if you look really at the history of education in this country for more time than not, uh, we did not care about the education of black students, Hispanic students, disabled students, poor students,
0: immigrant, recent immigrant, recent immigrant students.
1: For the majority of time that we have had public schools in this country, it has been focused on a very narrow subsection of white, affluent students with no extraordinary needs. And they went through the system and excelled and everybody else fell through the cracks. And that was the status quo. It is only in fairly recent history that we have passed IDEA and said we have to educate students with exceptional needs, that we've passed Title I and said students who are living in poverty come to school from extraordinary circumstances and we need to help accommodate for that. And every year we have raised the bar on what we expect schools to do. And they have become this catch-all for every other challenge in society. They are literally where the buck stops on the failing of every other public social system. But we expect schools to neutralize all of these effects and magically equalize the outcomes of these students. But while we have raised that bar to astronomical levels, we have not increased funding to the extent that it would show that schools are now centers of social welfare, economic and workforce development, housing, nutrition, public health. And so I think the question that we have to ask is what do we actually expect of schools? And if we actually expect our schools to neutralize the impact of poverty and disabilities and whatever extraordinary needs students are coming to school with and produce equal outcomes for them, what would that cost? Mm. And do we care and do we want to fund schools at the level of addressing those needs? Because right now we are not. We are still funding schools like we just expect them to elevate the top 20% of students to college and everybody else falls through the cracks. And while we have added all of these additional mandates and expectations that are truly extraordinary, we have not expanded funding to meet those expectations. And that is where we see the gap.
0: Oh my God. Yeah, this conversation, Jess, this is it for me. We've got to nail this. And I'm just befuddled and beside myself because it's like, no one's really digging into this. And by the no one, I mean, from the White House on down, I'm like, come on people. And I thought the pandemic would really kind of elevate that. You know, everyone's like, yes, equity, Black Lives Matter, Disabled Lives Matter, you know, let's reform immigration, like these major issues that are pulling at our democracy were coming to a head and I thought, We're gonna tackle it. And then it's like, hey, I want you to do community schools. Hey, hire some more tutors. Hey, yeah, do after school. Here's some money that'll last you two years. Bye bye. Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh my God. What's gonna happen to us? But anyway, on that. Ms. Gartner, I know you are traveling the world. I wish you safe travels. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today on Schooled. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. Schooled with Carla Hulse is available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music.